Let me invite you to take your Bibles again this morning. We will be reading in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm thankful for the opportunity to continue to work our way through the book of Hebrews. Many of you have loved the study. A couple of you have not. <laughs> we're thankful for those too. Uh, but we're grateful that we all love the Scripture. We want to hear more and more of the Scripture. I'm going to begin reading in a moment in verse 1. We remember that last week we actually preached Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. But I'm going to read them again nonetheless uh, just to remind you of what we've done. But we're going to read through verse 22 for reasons that will become obvious momentarily. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of 
of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now I stop in verse 22, not because that's the end of the point, because the point will continue for the entire chapter and we'll consider uh, the point again next week when we consider the latter half of the chapter. But I stop here because this is the end of what we might call the immediate descendants of Abraham. This is the family of Abraham and their stories. Uh, It precedes, of course, by verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 with those who uh, precede Abraham, specifically Abel, uh, Enoch, and uh, Noah. These all contained in Genesis chapter 1 to 11. And uh, then in chapter 12, we learned the story of Abraham, and the balance of Genesis is covered in the, pa- the passage we just read. So he is reminding his hearers of these patriarchs. Now I want to stop a minute and remind you what's going on here. The theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the way to God, and that all of the Old Testament is just a pointer to Jesus. The Ten Commandments is about Jesus. The law is about Jesus. The temple is about Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the temple. The temple is the presence of God, and Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The high priest is about Jesus. The sacrificial system is about Jesus. The work of the angels is serving the purposes of God in Jesus. And so he is tying every thread from the Old Testament to Jesus. You cannot understand the Old Testament if you ignore Jesus. That's why many today who claim to be followers of the Old Testament, particularly the Jewish people, don't understand the purposes of the Old Testament. The purposes of the Old Testament are to prepare the way for Jesus, the Son of God. It's not about the messengers of God. It's not about the prophets, as it turns out. It's not about the angels, as it turns out. It's not about the high priest, as it turns out. It's not about the sacrificial system. It's not about the temple. It's not even about the land. It turns out it's about Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, then you miss the point. And if you miss the point, you miss heaven. The stakes could not be higher. So there's a second thing he wants to do in the book of Hebrews and say, if Jesus is the point and you come to Jesus and then fall away, 
you really are in a world of hurt. You really don't understand what this is about. And so in this chapter, chapter 11, he's lining up witnesses to say, I believe Jesus until the end. How about you? I believe Jesus until the end. How about you? I believe Jesus without regard to the pressures of my life. How about you? I believe Jesus no matter how hard it was for me in my life. How about you? And he's lining up witness after witness after witness after witness who died never seeing the promise come true. Now, friend, what about you? It turns out you have a different seat watching the drama unfold. Your seat is after the promise has been fulfilled. The Old Testament saints look to the future coming of Jesus. We, as New Testament saints, look back to the coming of Jesus to recognize that the Old Testament saints who never saw him were at a disadvantage over us. We've been given a profound step up. We've been given a boost. We've been given an advantage. And make no mistake, you're accountable for your advantage. God hasn't done this without regard to the fact that he's given you a privilege. It's a privilege to look back and to see that Jesus has come exactly as the Old Testament said he would. At Christmas, we spend a lot of time talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these various prophecies. Isaiah 7 said he'll be born of a virgin. Turned out he was. Micah 2 says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Turned out he was. So forth. At Christmas, we spend a lot of time talking about the fact that those Old Testament prophecies all were fulfilled in Jesus. And all of that is designed to give you a boost. A boost of your faith. That you're not believing a pig in a poke. You're not believing in some sort of fantasy or some sort of shell game. You're believing in that which is true. And because of that, we read these stories and we're reminded that these people believed and they did not have the advantage that we do. Now we also look forward, let's be clear. We look forward not to the first coming of the Messiah, but to the second coming of the Messiah. Peter talks about this in his own letters. There will be many who will say today, well, it's been all these years since the Lord came and left and said he was coming back and he's not come, so that must all be a, 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 a sham. That must all be a lie. So we do live in the interim between the promise of the Lord's second return But we do have the advantage of knowing that every promise of the Old Testament regarding his first return has been kept. So we are not at a disadvantage. So when we read Hebrews 11, we read these names and remember these uh, stories, these testimonies, and we say, yes, yes, that's that's who I want to be. So I want to ask you just two questions in light of these things this morning. I want you to uh, note, first of all, 
leading up to the question, I'll give you the question in a moment, that he, he starts in verse 3 and he begins this series of, of uh, reminders, and he uses this little prepositional phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. You see it in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and every time he introduces a new reminder of the Old Testament, he points out, by faith, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Jacob, by faith, Joseph. That's the several that we've read this morning through verse 23. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. In other words, if they were declared righteous by faith, so will you and so must you. But I want to point out a couple of things here that really stand out that are particularly uh, critical. I want you to note that he uses, if you will, something that ministers to my own life, and I trust it will to you. He uses this word in verse 6, this word please or pleasure, this concept of pleasure. So I want to begin by asking you this question, do you desire to please God? Do you desire to please God? That's not an unimportant question. In fact, I would tell you that it is essential. It is the answer uh, to faith. Uh, by faith, uh, we want to please God. By faith, we can please God. And by faith, we only can please God. So I would ask this question, do you desire to please God? With that in mind, I want you to notice a couple of things. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 37, 38, he quotes Habakkuk. The Old Testament, Habakkuk. If you read a, a, one of the modern translations, you know they put these particular Old Testament quotes in indentations, re- reminding you he's quoting from the Old Testament. So he, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, a very familiar phrase there in verse 38, the righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure. It turns out that All of these Old Testament saints are desiring to please God. They want to please God. And I would suggest to you that that's probably not the way most of us describe our Christian lives or describe our affections to God. We're not running around just asking people willy-nilly, you know, hey, do you desire to please God? What are you doing today to please God? How's it going between you and God? Are you pleasing God today? That's not usually the kinds of conversations that we're having. But in fact, that's exactly what's going on here. I want you to notice what he does here. Notice in verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice through which he was commended as righteous. Commendation is a word of pleasure. It's a word of affirmation. Commendation. So here he is, verse 4, he commends or he announces his pleasure in Abel. He's quoting from Habakkuk at the end of chapter 10. He says, oh yeah, by the way, in light of that, let me show you how these people achieved the pleasure of God, achieved pleasing God. So Abel, he was commended. And and then there's Enoch. Notice at the end of the verse uh, 5, he was taken, he was commended as having please God. And then that gives rise to verse 6, this very famous verse, without faith, it is impossible 
to please him. By faith, verse 7, regarding Noah, by faith, uh, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir. God commended Noah. God blessed Noah. God honored Noah. God declared Noah's, Noah to be successful and to be someone that he approved of. Do you desire to please God? Well, he, he's very clear that you should. That you should. That, 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 that at the end of the day, the purpose of your life, the mission statement of your life needs to be more complex than this. I want to please God. That's it. I want to please God. Now, you can get at that in a thousand ways. And you can do it in your avocation. You can do it in your family. You can do it in your neighborhood. You can do it in your church. You can do it in your community. You can do it in a thousand places in a thousand ways. But at the end of the day, if the goal of it all is not, I want to please God, then it's wood, hay, and straw. If you don't do it for the honor of God, if you don't do it for the glory of God, if you don't do it for the wisdom of God, if you don't do it for the testimony of God, if you don't do it for the advancement of the kingdom of God, then you're doing it for the advancement of some other kingdom, which is not the kingdom of God. And God is not pleased or takes pleasure in our failing efforts to advance another agenda. In the Old Testament, the word for that is idolatry. So we want to live our lives, spend our lives. We want to get up day after day after day after day after day after day and bring glory to God. Now, invariably, as a pastor, I'm talking to people all the time about this very conundrum, this question, you know, how do I please God? Well, you know, what I do is so menial, what I do is so insignificant, what I do nobody really knows, and I, you know, I just do this, 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 and they, they want to they suggest these things are unimportant. Well, of course they're not unimportant, not if they're done for the glory of God. Listen, if you give a cup of cold water, that's pretty insignificant, except to the guy drinking the water. It's pretty significant to him. And the Scripture says if you do this in the Lord's name, then the Lord is pleased. Think about that. It's not hard to please God. It's really not. It's just regular stuff. It's just regular life. It's just doing life. But you do it in such a way as to bring honor to God, to point people to God, to serve people and their needs and their circumstances. And you do it as unto God. You wash their feet as unto Christ. You serve their needs as unto Christ. You bless them. You encourage them. You pat them on the back. You say wonderful things about them. You help them. You, you, you reach out to them. And you do this as unto God. Because they are the people that God has ordained as important. I reflected on it this week, Matthew 25. You remember that's the passage where Jesus is coming down to the end of his ministry. He's about to be crucified, Matthew 26, about to be arrested. So in Matthew 25, he offers a warning warning. That's what he did. They got him in trouble. You know, he warned people. They didn't like it when they warned him because he came off as a threat. People say all the time, you know, is that a threat? Well, with Jesus, it is. Beyond that, it's more than that. It's a, it's a promise. 
But in Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about how he's going to separate, at the end of the age, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. That's Matthew 25. And you'll remember, this is the criteria that he's going to use. It's going to go like this. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And to the extent that you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. And the goats are the ones who had the same opportunities to do any number of things like all of that. And they didn't. They had no regard for God and his desire to be pleased with them. And they had no regard for the people that God placed in their lives, the opportunities that God placed in their lives. And to the degree that they did not do these things, they did not do them to Christ. I'm reminded that faith, verse 6 says, involves two things. Now, he's already defined faith, you'll note, back in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I don't have time to go back and preach last week's sermon, but there it is. But here again, he defines it again, verse 6, in a different way. And he says that those who come to God by faith must believe that he is that he is. Now, immediately, people want to say, well, there, there it is. You know, you must believe in God. Well, yes, but no. Yes, you must believe in God. That's certainly true. But virtually everybody you talk to, and there are obviously notable exceptions in all our lives. We've got some folks who claim to be atheists who may or may not be if Push comes to shove, but nonetheless, they're wearing that badge with honor today. And you're not going to talk them out of it, so stop yelling at them. But you must believe that he is God, that he is God. And people say, well, you know, you must believe in God. Well, there's a difference between believing in God and believing he is God. This is more than just believing in a first cause. Do you believe in a first cause? Of course you do. The Bible doesn't give you any wiggle room on that. If you believe the Bible, you have to believe in a first cause. But the problem with the first cause is he has no personality. He has no identity. He, he, he has no attributes. He's just the first cause. He's this imaginary first cause. There's this ultimate first cause. Evolution as a system believes in a first cause. There was some cataclysmic circumstance that when nothing became something. You got a problem with that? There was a cataclysmic circumstance when nothing became something. That's Genesis 1, by the way. When nothing became something. The problem with that is it's not repeatable scientifically. Because there's no circumstance in our world today where nothing exists. Nothing quit existing the minute there became something. So the very fact you're here, you are you're messing up our scientific experiment. Because it turns out you're something. 
And because you're something, you matter, and you have matter, and it, it just doesn't work. So, so the problem with Genesis 1 and 2 is you can't repeat it. And so a way to get around that without acknowledging God is just to identify God as some sort of first cause, the first cataclysmic something, first cause. Others would say, well, I, just, I, I believe in a supreme being. Well, again, I don't want to throw too many rocks at that because there are some places where people, let's don't get too tied up in semantics. Let's be careful about arguing over words and controversies about silly words. But if your supreme being doesn't have character, if, there, if there's no personhood behind your supreme being, if your supreme being is just capricious, just willy-nilly does what he does and does because he likes to show off or you know, impress the so-called gods uh, up in the pantheon, you know, the Greeks fam- famous for having these gods who were very capricious. Zeus was always trying to impress the others and the others were all trying to impress Zeus and all trying to, it was, a, it was all big, a big petty uh, party in the Greek system. None of that's true. None of it. What is true is God is more than a first cause and he's more than merely a supreme being. Turns out he's God. So faith must believe that God is God. God. All right? And the second thing he says is that he must be, you must believe that he is a rewarder. A rewarder. And I've covered this before in this Hebrew series, and I won't belabor it again except to say this. If you don't believe in heavenly rewards, you are not believing the Bible. The Bible makes much of heavenly rewards and says that you should live your life today with full regard for heavenly rewards. Why are you doing what you do? Because I want to please God and I'm looking forward to his reward. Our problem in this life is that we think that God should pay off in this life. You know, if I give 20 bucks, then God should reward me with 40. If I give $100, God should reward me with 1,000. If I'm faithful in a little, God should give me much now. That's the way man thinks, that's not necessarily the way God thinks. God sometimes does. God has the power to make rich. Abraham is an example. Abraham is one of the richest men in the Middle East, the time of his death. He came there with nothing, zero, zip, nada, and God made him just fabulously wealthy. You think God is anti-money? No, he's not. God is anti the love of money because that's called idolatry. We all experience this at Christmas. You know, your kids, your kids love you because you bring gifts. Now I have grandchildren. Your grandchildren love you because you bring gifts. I don't want to be loved as the gift giver. I want to be loved for being who I am. And oh, by the way, because of who I am, I give you gifts. But you know, if, you, if, I, don't, if I come this week and I don't bring gifts, are you not pleased to see me? We have, we had a little conversation yesterday. Susan and I are going to be seeing some of our grandchildren soon, and and Susan's accumulating a little stuff. You know, she's into that. You know, little got to collect this and this and this, and then we want to bless them and reward them. And and by the way, I'm into that too. Let's, let's be clear. But 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 one of our grandchildren really likes these bath bombs, musies, right? If you don't know what that is, 
Don't waste a minute of your time trying to figure it out, okay? Basically, it's bubble bath. All right, so, so one of my little granddaughters just loves it. And so every time we come, she says, did you bring me a musee? Hello. Do I look like a musee? No, I didn't bring you a musee. And every time I come, I'm not going to bring you a musee. Well, she's young, right? At some point, she's gonna, I'm going to break her heart, and she's going to realize that every time my grandfather comes, he's not going to be bringing gifts. That's the mind of a child. It's not the mind of an adult. You want to see the value of people for who they are, not what they give you. So God is not interested in us simply living for God because he's the sugar daddy. He's the heavenly Santa Claus. But rather, because God is a rewarder of those who place their trust in him and seek to live their lives accordingly. I know that this is not in vain. Do you know it? I know that every sacrifice you make matters and that God keeps count. And God keeps score. And God pays off. I know this. And the reason I know this is because his book tells me so. And by faith, I believe it. By faith, I have ordered my life accordingly. And there is an entire landscape choices that I never even consider because those things are not indicative of a life of faith they are not pointers to the fact that I believe that God is God and that God is a rewarder of those who are diligently saying no to all of that whatever it may be. Interesting, just as an illustration, we'll start here next week, but I'll show you verse 23. I stopped at verse 22, but look at verse 23. Here's an example of someone who personifies this, rightly so. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the sons of the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He rather considered the reproach of Christ. Moses lived centuries, even more than a millennium, before Christ. But he considered the reproaches of Christ because remember, Moses is really all about Christ. The whole story of Moses and the Exodus is really all about Christ delivering us from slavery, the slavery of our own sin and the slavery of our life here. The only way we're ever going to see heaven is if we get saved from this place. The only way we're ever going to see heaven is we get rescued. We need somebody to come and grab us out of this chaos. You want a life with no more hurricanes? You got to go to heaven. You want a life with no more cancer? You got to go to heaven. You want a life with no more relational problems? You got to go to heaven. So notice he says, by faith Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
So he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Again, he's, he's reminding his hearers, the writer of Hebrews is, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all these other things. Jesus is what you want. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is what you have to have. But you've got to hang on to the end. To the end. There's a second question, and I'll be brief. Verse 16. And he mentions that God has prepared for them a city. Do you desire, not just to please God, but do you desire his city? Now, he uses this metaphor again and again. I'm going to show you this plainly in the book of Revelation momentarily. But you'll notice in verse 10 that as regards Abraham, he says, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations. A city that has foundations. It turns out Abraham was looking for a city. Now, I don't want to belabor Abraham's story, but in the event that you've forgotten, Abraham lived his entire life in Canaan, today what we call Israel, and he never, ever had a house. Abraham never lived in a house his entire life. He says so here. He dwelt in tents. Verse 9, by faith he lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Now, if God said, I'm going to move you over here and I'm going to give you all this land, what would you do? Well, you would do what, what all of us do. And I'm not throwing rocks. I'm just saying this is the burden that we all have to contend with. When we own stuff, stuff owns us. So he moved in. But his heart never moved in. That's an extraordinary person. Abraham is very flawed, by the way. I could give you, I could give you a laundry list of reasons why Abraham is a flawed human being. That guy had issues, big time. But on this one issue, his faith is extraordinary. God took him out of Ur of Chaldee and he brought him to the promised land and he said, this is going to be your land. And he never built a house. He lived in a tent his entire life. I don't know, that's kind of strange to me. You say, well, probably everybody's living in tents. I don't know, you ever heard of places in the Bible like Jericho? Was anybody living in a tent in Jericho? No, they weren't. The excavations of Jericho tell us that the walls were 30 feet high and 6 feet deep. Does that sound like a tent to you? No. But Abraham lived in a tent. And the reason he was, because verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It turns out, that what Abraham really had his heart fixed on was God. And what his heart was fixed on was the city of God. The city of God. And that's not where most of us live. And this is why we are miserable so often in this life. This is why we're so, we're so earthbound. We're, we're so committed to this life that we somehow think that our value is determined by our stuff. And our value is determined by our experience. Our value is determined by what we can accumulate or what we can acquire in this life. And the reality is none of that's true. It, as it turns out, 
our value is determined by whether or not God is pleased with us. And if God is pleased with us, we are actually accumulating rewards that are going to last because everything here doesn't have foundations. God has determined he's going to destroy the earth and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's already told us he's going to do that. Do you know how much of your stuff is going to survive? I'm telling you, the deed to your property is going to go away. I don't know exactly how it's going to go away, how quickly it's going to go away, but it's going to go away. It's not going to last. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be populated with people of God. And those people of God are going to be given, as it were, a new domain, a new territory, new land. Real land, different kind of land, I don't know. I don't, there's a million questions about the new heaven and the new earth that nobody has the answer to. But here's what I know, that whoever has sent the most rewards ahead factors into the new heaven and the new earth. So you may be a pauper here, but have loads stored up in heaven. Well, in due time, friend, you won't be a pauper anymore. In due time, you'll die by faith looking for a city that has foundations, you're moving to a new place of residence. To quote George Jefferson, that famous theologian, you're moving on up. And how do you move up? You please God. That's how. It's a committee of one. And how do you please God? You believe him. You believe him. You believe his word is true. You believe his promises are true. You believe his righteousness is true. You believe his son is true. You believe him. You must believe him. You look for a city, his foundations. So when is that city coming? Where is that city going to be? Well, that all brings us to Revelation 21. You don't have to turn here, but I'll just remind you of these verses. You probably know them. The Apostle John, in his heavenly vision, God took him to heaven to show him the glories of heaven. This is the next to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. There shall not be mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. Or... It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for, these are the folks that don't make it, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be with the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He goes on in Revelation 21 and tells us about this city. Turns out it's a perfect cube. 
Don't get too caught up in that, except to remember this, that it is perfect. It's perfect. And the reason it's perfect is because God is the ruler of that city. Jesus tells us in John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. A place for you. What kind of place is Jesus building for me? Oh, well, we think about it. You know, it's going to be a mansion. Well, if you're looking for one of those antebellum things, you know, with a lot of columns and white, that's what you're looking for. Maybe you're going to get one of those. I think probably not. But I tell you what, this friend, it's going to be yours. It's going to be yours. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's going to be yours. I just would urge you to send some building supplies on ahead of you. You need to live this life like you know where you're going. And you're going to recognize it when you get there. No more mourning, no more crying, no more dying. No more sorrow, no more sin, no more selfishness. No more all this junk we got to live with here. None of that. No more old age, no more creaky knees, no more bad backs. No more headaches. <laughs> Literal and figurative. No more. Because Jesus is building a place for me. And I'm in the process day after day after day, just like you are in the process day after day after day of living this life with an eye toward that city. By faith, that's mine. And by faith, that's yours. By faith. The world will look at us and they will say, you know, you Christian people, you all don't really understand. You're a bunch of Pollyanna type people. You're a bunch of crazies who don't believe in things that are rational. It's irrational to believe in something you cannot see or touch or understand or you can't see under construction. I remind you, we've already read the reminder of Noah. Noah said it's going to rain. The Bible said it had never rained prior to that. Imagine somebody said one day, it's going to, I don't know, I'm going to make up a word here. Well, I don't, I don't even know how to make up a word. Uh, it's just, it's going to do something that's never happened before. And you look at me and you say, what's that? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I've just heard about it. Really? Who'd you hear it from? God. Oh. And then, you know, call the guys in the white coats and come get me, right? Well, Noah goes one better. He goes out in his front yard. He builds a boat. And not just any boat. Hundreds of feet long. We got a replica up in Kentucky right now, in case you're interested. Hundreds of feet long. Can you imagine? What do you think his neighbors are saying? By the way, it took him 120 years to build it. What would you do if somebody built a boat in your yard that was hundreds of feet long and they did it for 500, I mean, for, for 120 years? Well, you would have had him arrested year one. You would have had him condemned and, and carted off. And, but Noah's friends didn't do that because, you see, they didn't know what rain was and they did know. They, did not, they knew about God, but they had no regard for God. And so in the end, when the rain did come, 
The only one who was saved was Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their, their wives. Eight people survived because they had no regard for God. So you people are not crazy if you believe in that which is promised. It turns out that people everywhere have always believed in that which is promised. It's not irrational, and it's not dependent upon this lifetime. It doesn't have to be accomplished in your lifetime. Do you know how many generations have died since Jesus? A bunch. In fact, every generation has died. So it's not dependent upon God. We don't set the calendar. We don't dictate terms to God. Instead, we're just encouraged to be like these folks. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Noah, Enoch, Abel. By faith, live your life. And by faith, live your life until you die. And by faith, live your life until you die. Believing that God is God. And that he's a rewarder of people who believe that he's God until he dies. I urge you today to recognize that God has given you his son. That you might look to him. That you might be saved. And that you might be rescued one day. Join me. Until we die. To look for that city. This isn't home. Let's hold on to it loosely. Because one day, we're going to get real, real attached to something that's never going to wear out. It's going to be our reward. I'm thankful for that, for the privilege of serving God with you until we die. May God give us grace to do it well. Let's pray. We are not worthy to be counted amongst these who've been named already in the scripture. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Lord. True men of faith. We're not worthy. We're not worthy to be counted. And yet, you've invited us to come and follow them. To do as they do, to live as they lived, and to look as they looked to a city whose maker and builder is God. Thank you, Father. Give us grace to do that and to do it well, to serve and serve and serve and serve some more, and to not quit and not quit and never quit until we die. Give us grace, much grace, to look to Jesus today the author and finisher of our faith. It's in his name we pray.